Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. Hey, strangers. To the parents out there, this is a mystery that may not be suitable for our youngest strangers. It's a tale about holiday magic. So, listener discretion is advised. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Strangers, no matter your belief systems or winter holiday traditions, we're pretty sure that you're familiar with a particularly famous poem first published in the early 19th century. It's one so famous that we'd bet you can recite the first lines right along with us. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in the hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. Yes, that's a visit from St. Nicholas, better known as the night before Christmas or twas the night before. We'll take any variations as correct answers in our holiday jeopardy, and we'll use all of them too, just for fun. As poems go, that one is not bad. It's pretty good even. Personally, we would have worked in at least one reference to the Mothman or an uneasy spirit or at least one unbreakable curse. Alas, no one ever consults us regarding what makes for an absolute holiday banger. Even so, we'll admit this one is a classic. In any case, the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, managed to become wildly popular without those extremely important elements. In fact, since its first publication in the Troy Sentinel newspaper in 1823, yes, this year is its 200th anniversary, it has become a true Christmas tradition. Even more than that, it has shaped our modern image and our story of Santa Claus, his reindeer, and, well, the night before Christmas. As Carnegie Mellon University explains, quote, before the poem's publication, St. Nicholas was portrayed as a lanky, stern bishop who visited children to dispense both gifts and discipline. 
"'Twas the night before Christmas recast St. Nicholas as a cheerful, rosy-cheeked elf and established Christmas as a time for giving gifts to children. Apparently, this concept was only reinforced by the cartoons and illustrated versions of the poem, which first appeared alongside it in 1849. Now, that's all a bit of a simplification. As the Dutch, they had their own version of St. Nicholas, who was a bit more roguish, but we'll get to that a little later. It's certainly true that Twas the Night gave us that jolly old elf that we think of today. But back to the original printing in 1823. Per Poetry Nation, that 56-line poem was actually first run on December 23rd. So the day before the night before Christmas, if we're getting technical, and it was not attributed to any author. Now for a newspaper article that was the norm in the 19th century. But when it comes to literary authorship, things are a little more complicated. You may remember this from your English classes, but if not, we are thrilled to catch you up. The simple version is this. At various points in history, it was not unusual, in fact, it could even be fashionable, to publish novels, stories, and collections of poems anonymously or under a pen name. There were many reasons for this, including, but not limited to, the rising presence of women in publishing, the appearance of modesty, writing outside one's expected genre, and avoiding less genteel pursuits, like earning money for writing. Another good reason was to test the waters before you put your name on something. After all, if everyone hated your book, you might go ahead and pretend that you, uh, didn't write it after all. Many anonymous works were a poorly kept secret, and everyone knew who wrote them, or their names were added in future printings after they became popular. Similarly, famous pen names were often freely associated with their authors. All this to say, an anonymous work on the face was not unusual. Such was the case in 1823. But as viral texts adds, it was a little more popular for poems published in newspapers to be attributed to their authors, though that was by no means universal. As they note, author attribution was more common for celebrity poets because it helped sell papers. But either way, readers wouldn't bat an eye. So when a visit from St. Nicholas appeared anonymously in 1823, this was a common practice. What's a little odder, though, is that once the poem became popular, indeed, once it became part of the zeitgeist and actually influenced American culture, it remained so. After all, with all that popularity, we imagine it would be tempting to claim the glory. Many once anonymous authors did so when their works took off. But year after year, the poem appeared in December, and that mystery remained, at least for most. Apparently, it seemed that the editors at the Troy Sentinel, where the poem originally ran, knew who the anonymous poet was. According to the Daily Herald, quote, Several years after the poem's publication in the Sentinel, editor Orville Hawley wrote that the author was, quote, by birth and residence belonging to the city of New York, 
and that he is a gentleman of more merit as a scholar and writer than many more noisy pretensions. In fact, perhaps that's precisely why the author was hesitant to come forward. Merit as a scholar might not be synonymous with a little Christmas poem, no matter how popular it might be. Hard for us to imagine strangers, as we personally crave the bright light of celebrity and fame and riches. If you can make that happen, our DMs are wide open. Anyway, as Columbia Magazine explains, this meritorious author might have remained quiet forever, except that in 1844, someone else claimed credit for his work. It was that Christmas that the poem ran, as it had for the last 20 years, in papers across the country. In one newspaper, the Washington Intelligencer, the poem appeared. Nothing unusual there. But this time around, it was misattributed to another author. The university does not tell us who. Did this misattributed author claim credit? Was it simply a mistake? Either way, the end result was that the actual poet finally stepped forward. And he was not famous, as you might be imagining at this point. That would be too convenient for our purposes. But he was, by all accounts, respected. And what's more, how his poem ended up in the Troy Sentinel has been a matter of some debate, as these things often are. So, let us now introduce you to Clement Clark Moore. The Daily Star wrote that he was quite the respected 19th century scholar. He was based at the General Theological Seminary in New York, where he focused his research on the Bible. As the Poetry Foundation explained, Moore was a well-to-do and well-educated man who had multiple degrees from Columbia University. He eventually became a professor at the Theological Seminary, where he taught literature. He and his wife were extremely religious people, and they were also the parents to nine children. Moore was roundly considered to be a very serious man. Perhaps that's why it was rather surprising to think of him as the author of such a lighthearted work about stockings hung with care and fanciful holiday dreams. In fact, you might reasonably wonder why Clement Moore might write such a poem at all, but even more so, why he would publish it, considering his body of scholarly work on the Bible and foreign literature. Well, by all accounts, he didn't publish his poem. Not exactly. Not personally. The story of how the poem ended up in the Troy Sentinel has varied, depending on the source. Mental Floss reported that, quote, a housekeeper had, without Moore's knowledge, sent the piece, which he had written for his kids, to the newspaper. But Columbia Magazine published a slightly different account. Quote, a Moore family friend, Harriet Butler of Troy, New York, heard Moore read the poem and asked to copy it down. A year later at Christmas time, Butler's friend, Sarah Sackett, submitted the unsigned poem to the Troy Sentinel, which published it anonymously. Apparently in that version, Moore had read the poem at a party to entertain his guests, and it had been a hit. What, though, had inspired him to take the rather pious figure of St. Nicholas and transform him into a portly, reindeer-wielding Santa Claus? 
Well, a few things, actually. At least some of the details of the poem were influenced by a piece by the famed American author Washington Irving. You might remember him as the writer of Rip Van Winkle. But Irving wrote plenty of other things, including an account of St. Nicholas as Sinterklaas, his Dutch incarnation, sailing across the New York City sky. According to the History Channel, Washington Irving's work, which appeared in his book, The History of New York, was inspired by stories told by Dutch immigrants to New York. They brought their Sinterklaas to the city, which was, quote, a shortened form of St. Nicholas. Irving was quite the student of New York culture, and he was interested in the Sinterklaas stories, which presented a livelier figure of St. Nicholas, one who brought presents to children. This was illustrated in Sinterklaas woodcuts that became popular with the New York Historical Society and which Washington Irving saw. They included stockings stuffed with treats delivered by Sinterklaas. To make those deliveries, Sinterklaas traveled in a wagon that had the ability to fly. Apparently, though, Washington Irving's Sinterklaas was rather different than what we're used to. Irving described him variously as, quote, the patron saint of New York, and dressed in, quote, a blue three-cornered hat, red waistcoat, and yellow stockings, or, quote, a man wearing a broad-brimmed hat and a huge pair of Flemish trunk hose. Not very, um, Santa-ish, we must say, though the History Channel assures us that there were some elements that we'd recognize as familiar, an air of merry mischief that eventually translated to that jolly old elf that we've come to know. Anyway, it's made clear that Moore had certainly read Washington Irving, but Columbia Magazine tells us that he had plenty of original material of his own. Clement Moore, quote, endowed his Saint Nick with other traits that would come to define the American Santa Claus, a plump, jolly, cherry-nosed, white-bearded chimney spelunker whose toy pack sleigh drawn by a team of reindeer makes its yearly flight over the rooftops on Christmas Eve. Moore also named the reindeer and cemented the idea that Santa rode on a sleigh through the sky, pulled by beasts that could, in fact, fly. The Dutch roots were there, and Washington Irving's influence, but no one can argue that Moore's own original ideas were a huge part of what made the modern Santa Claus. It was a rather fanciful poem for a taciturn scholar, certainly, but Moore was a scholar of New York, and no doubt he was interested in any history that might come his way. In fact, he was deeply involved in the city's historical society. Still, he did acknowledge that the work was out of character. According to the New York State Library, when Moore finally published the poem in his 1944 collection, quote, he referred to it as his long-ago trifle, a thing he hadn't cared to acknowledge before, but would happily do so now. We like to think that even the most serious gentleman might want to entertain his children or his guests, whichever story was true, at the holidays. We all indulge in a little joy sometimes, don't we? However the poem came to the Troy Sentinel, 
It was after 1844 that Clement Clark Moore was attributed as the author of Twas the Night. And from that point on, the poem was included in anthologies of Moore's own work. For a few decades, yes, it had remained a small literary mystery. But as those things go, well, it was solved quickly enough, wasn't it? Or it would have been, except for one strange thing. Some would argue that it hasn't been solved at all. And that another man, Major Henry Livingston Jr., should have gotten the credit all along. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode. Kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest, in this nowhere area? And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you're probably asking, who on earth is Henry Livingston Jr., and how is he involved in this story? Well, let's start with the easy part. His biography. According to the Poetry Foundation, Major Henry Livingston Jr., quote, was a member of a leading colonial New York family who worked as a farmer, surveyor, and a justice of the peace. According to a website dedicated to Henry Livingston, his family was from Poughkeepsie, which was a Dutch stronghold in the United States, and his mother's family, the Conklins, they were of Dutch stock. The Poetry Foundation tells us that Livingston had fought in the Revolutionary War, thus the whole major thing, and after the war, he took to writing. Per the foundation, quote, Livingston published mainly occasional and light verse in regional journals. His poems were often published anonymously or under the pseudonym of R. His poems were entertaining and often dedicated to or for his children. And 
Perhaps most importantly, he was very familiar with the Dutch stories of Sinterklaas. So, as a writer of light verse with a Dutch background, it would not be so odd for a man like Livingston to write a Christmas poem, one that celebrated and Americanized a Dutch tradition. So, certainly, he had the background. But did Henry Livingston Jr. ever claim to have written A Visit from St. Nicholas? According to the New York State Library, no. We imagine that he might have seen the poem in the paper, it was everywhere, but as far as scholars know, he never made any noise about stolen glory. There's not even any indication, as far as we can tell, that he might have been that misattributed author from 1844. Henry Livingston Jr. died in 1828, five years after the poem was published, at the ripe old age of 79, with plenty of children and grandchildren to remember him. And it was those descendants, and eventually their descendants, who would take up his cause. They're the ones who said they discovered the poem had been attributed to Moore. But, as the Poughkeepsie Journal reported, Livingston's family claimed that was simply impossible. Moore could not possibly have read the poem to his own friends or family in the early 1820s, because their own father, Henry Livingston Jr., had written it for his family in 1808. Quote, According to family accounts, Livingston emerged from his writing room on Christmas morning and announced he had written a very special poem for his family and guests. Sitting among them, Livingston read A Visit from St. Nicholas, which began with the distinctive line, "'Twas the night before Christmas." We assume that it became a family favorite, but there's no accompanying story of Livingston deciding to reach a wider audience through the newspaper, The Troy Sentinel. In fact, his family claimed that they never saw the poem in the papers at all, not for a few decades. Which might bring our theory that it surely circulated to their house into question. But it also begs another question. If Livingston himself never sought to publish the poem, then how, if he did indeed write it, did it make it to the press? Well, according to the Poughkeepsie Journal, Livingston's fifth great-granddaughter? She has an answer for that. That relative, a woman named Mary Van Dusen, told the paper that, quote, a guest who'd heard Livingston recite the poem that Christmas morning was so enthralled with it that she pleaded with Livingston to make her a copy, which he did. Upon leaving Locust Grove, the young woman traveled to the home of Moore on her way to a job as a governess for one of Moore's relatives. As you might imagine, Moore's family stringently disagreed with this assertion. Per the journal, they had plenty of Moore's own handwritten versions of the poem. Of course, that was not proof positive because he'd made numerous copies in longhand for friends and family. And what about Livingston's copies? Surely his family would have them, right? Well, wrong. The Poughkeepsie Journal wrote that, quote, According to family accounts, Livingston's original copy was destroyed in a fire in 1847 at his daughter's home in Wisconsin. So, it is not possible to prove authorship simply based on dated work. But as you might imagine, scholars and descendants 
have not stopped there. Since the question of providence arose, various methods have been undertaken to try and prove authorship once and for all. Moore, having been an academic and a more well-known writer, has his papers archived at his alma mater, Columbia, which also happens to be the university where he spent his career. And those archivists do claim to have quite a bit of paperwork to back up his authorship. Per the Daily Star, Columbia University archives many copies of his work, including an 1836 version in an anthology published by his friend, who attributed the poem to Moore years before he came out as the author officially in 1844. There's also a copy of Moore's follow-up poem, The Night After Christmas, which follows a very similar theme. Moore's relatives argue that that is proof in and of itself. In fact, generations of those relatives have spent many years amassing other supporting documents to add to the archives. Per the Daily Herald, some of those papers are even housed at the New York Historical Society. But Columbia Magazine explains that the Livingston theory is supported by another, more modern technique, digitized pattern analysis. There's a Vassar professor, a literary sleuth, the magazine calls him, named Don Foster, who wrote a rather famous book called Author Unknown, On the Trail of Anonymous. All the way back in 2000, he wrote that he'd exposed the author of a famous anonymous work, Primary Colors. Per Columbia, Foster's method involves, quote, crunching data from authors' digitized writings to identify idiosyncratic patterns of syntax, vocabulary, and punctuation, which, he argues, are, quote, as distinctive as fingerprints. When asked to take on the Moore-Livingston debate, he decided in favor of Livingston. His reason? Theme, of course, as Livingston wrote light verse, but it's also that the poem is similar to many of Livingston's others in terms of meter. Quote, the meter of most of Livingston's poems, like that of A Visit, is anapestic, two unstressed syllables followed by a stressed one. Conversely, Moore is known to have only written one or two anapestic poems. Foster also noted a number of other similarities to Livingston's writing, including certain turns of phrase. Another clue that might point to Livingston. Columbia Magazine wrote that in the earliest printings of Twas the Night, two of the reindeer had different names. They were originally, quote, Dunder and Blixum, after the Dutch oath meaning thunder and lightning. But the magazine reported that in Moore's handwritten versions, those copies that he made for friends, he used, quote, the German Donder and Blitzen. Foster's claim here was that Livingston knew Dutch and Moore did not. Of course, there is the matter that Moore scholars believe that he was very familiar with Washington Irving's work, which introduced him to the Dutch Center Clause. But, strangers, you will recall that Irving never named any reindeer. That was entirely Moore's invention, or maybe Livingston's. Oh dear, this is a pickle. Honestly, the debate rages on today. It's even been the subject of mock trials. 
Wikipedia even presents the poem with arguments for both sides. Some official sites and sources, like the Poetry Foundation, have landed on the side of Livingston. They argue that tone, style, and background favor him. Others look at Moore's documents, claims, and handwritten versions as stronger support. Besides, they ask, would such a pious man have been willing to lie for what? Conceit? And though Livingston was Dutch, Moore was well entrenched with the New York Historical Society, which was invested in Dutch culture and familiar with Irving's works. But then there's the theme of Moore's other works. Truly, strangers, this debate rabbit hole is a deep one. It could keep you busy until spring. There are certainly worse ways to spend your time online. Ultimately, we do love a good mystery. And while certainly a few of our listeners may have already chosen a side in this debate, we think, in the spirit of holiday magic, we will choose to believe in how much improved a Santa we have, thanks to Twas the Night. Really, a three-cornered hat and some Flemish hose? We're willing to thank any author for that costume change. And then you add in some reindeer flair, some razzle-dazzle, and some chimney shimmying in New York City? Truly, we cannot complain. And so we'll end on this. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, strangers. May all your mysteries not be solved too quickly. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Strangers, I've released my first book, and it's available everywhere now as audio, hardcover, and ebook. It actually came out this October, and I read the audio version myself. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's about John and Jane Doe's, my years-long experience following forensic experts around the country, and our efforts to solve the mystery of a cold case. One Strange Thing is an independently produced podcast. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, you now have three options to enjoy two extra bonus episodes a month. On Apple Premium and Supercast, you can get the bonus episodes delivered to your app of choice for just $2.99. And for two more dollars a month on Patreon, you'll get more fun extras. There you'll find ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, two full-length bonus episodes, monthly giveaways, blog posts, and occasional live streams, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check out one of these options and support the show. There's a link in our show notes. And if you enjoy One Strange Thing, please take a moment to leave us a great rating or review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Mm-hmm.